Welcome to Breakout Startups, a podcast about the most prominent entrepreneurs and investors building the companies that transform our lives. My name is Tomer Federman. I'm an entrepreneur and an angel investor in early stage enterprise and fintech startups. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech and previously was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Breakout Startups podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today Evan Quo, the co-founder and CEO of Ampel4. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tomer. I'm glad to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to your audience. Yeah, absolutely. So Evan, what is Ampel4? Well, Ampleforth is actually a cryptocurrency protocol that produces a cryptocurrency called Ample, A-M-P-L. Um, it's, it's like Bitcoin, except for the number of units in your wallet increases or decreases automatically based on price exchange rate once every day. And the motivation behind this design is to create an elastic base money something like a commodity money, like gold or silver, but with supply elasticity. Um, and we designed it this way uh, to be a better building block for this new financial ecosystem that's under development right now. What's the goal about the ongoing change in supply? What's the thinking behind that? So I mean, it's novel today um, in crypto, but it's, it's kind of a concept that monetary economists have noodled about for a really long time. So You know, beginning with James Buchanan, who introduced, you know, or was really pushing for kind of rules-based uh, monetary policy. But, um, you know, even Milton Friedman talked about kind of the limitations of commodity reserve currencies and, you know, very simply identified the limitation of uh, fixed supply assets like gold as a building block for a financial ecosystem. So we've actually seen what happens uh, a number of times when you use Gold is kind of this primitive uh, cornerstone of a financial ecosystem. Um, you end up with a banking system that's not really adaptable to sudden shocks in demand. And that's because it's very difficult for um, gold to be produced. It's very expensive. It's not very elastic. So to increase or decrease the circulating supply of gold is very burdensome. And ultimately, that's why we kind of broke off into a pure fiat standard uh, where essentially we can create As much money as we want very cheaply um, but only at the discretion of human decision makers and so economists have kind of long dreamed about the idea of a commodity money something that you know individuals can't control um, that has this quality of supply elasticity because if that were the case well then you'd have a simple building block um, that's owned by no one uh, and isn't kind of controlled by any one individual group of individuals or, or government That could be used as kind of the primitive you know building block or foundation of a banking system and so you know even as recently as 2015 George Selgin at this the Cato Institute um, proposed this idea of a synthetic commodity money with a perfectly elastic supply policy and you know, after the ethereum platform came out um, you know we kind of ended up implementing something like that Hmm, interesting. So the idea is to more effectively handle shocks in demand. That's why you have that flexibility on the supply side? Pretty much. I mean, if you remember what happened under Bretton Woods, um, we had a system through which uh, gold was redeemable, or dollars were rather redeemable for gold by foreign governments and central banks. Um, And we got into a situation where the dollar, just as it is today, was a global reserve currency, and there's more demand for dollars uh, than there was kind of supply of gold, right? And so to keep pace with the growing demand for dollars, 
um, the U.S. had to kind of obtain more and more gold and it got to a point where it, they couldn't anymore. And what happened in that situation is, is the, the price of gold started to skyrocket. Um, and when that happens, what, what people tend to do is they hold on to their gold. So they think maybe a nugget of gold can buy a refrigerator today, but perhaps it can buy two refrigerators tomorrow. And, and so they hold on to their gold. And as a result, uh, right when the ecosystem needs to increase the circulating supply of gold in order to allow this economy to function, because it has this paper money that was backed by gold, um, the incentive is actually to hoard and withhold gold from from circulation. So that's an example of kind of a demand shock that put the system at risk of a deflationary spiral. And that's why Nixon ended up having to cancel redeemability under Bretton Woods. And so we kind of went to our academic advisors at Stanford's Hoover Institute uh, and, and kind of you know po- posed the question like, well, what would have happened if we just used Bitcoin instead of gold under Bretton Woods? And you know, it's very clear that the same outcome would have played out, right? It's even less elastic than gold. It's yeah, nobody wants to spend their created. Bitcoin. No, and so if Bitcoin went up, people would hold it. Uh, the circulating supply would decrease, and therefore there wouldn't be enough dollars to kind of, you know, uh, support the growing economy, and the system would collapse. And so uh, then, then it became obvious that okay, well, well there can't really be a new Bitcoin standard that's analogous to the gold standard that's going to be robust and better. Um, what what sort of base money or commodity money um, would have, what, what qualities would that base money need to have in order for it to actually support a system like that? And, you know, it really would be something much more like Ample, where it is a rules-based supply policy, but it's elastic. And, you know, it's elasticity functions based on demand. So we have these commodity monies that have elastic supply, so to speak, in the form of like traditional commodities like wheat, right? So imagine you got a crop of wheat and there's a really great weather season, you know, you might have more wheat or there's a really bad weather season, you might have less wheat. And um, in our system, it's just more that that increase or decrease in supply or quantity is not a function of random weather patterns, but a function of demand. It's it's a function of price exchange rate on a daily basis. What I really like about that, on one hand, it sounds similar to fiat, right? So similar to the US dollar, for instance, where the central authority can basically decide to issue more of that, in that case, dollars. But on the other hand, you also have the other side of the equation where you can decide to decrease the supply and so it sounds much more flexible than the current fiat system that we have in place. Yeah, I mean, well, so the idea, it does have some qualities of fiat and some qualities of commodity money. And really, um, the key here is that we are not increasing or decreasing supply ourselves. It's a protocol that increases or decreases um, supply based on a set of rules. And so it, the protocol just kind of monitors this 24-hour volume-weighted price exchange rate. It receives that as an input from oracles and then executes this change to a global scalar variable that, that basically is a coefficient of expansion, right? And uh, by simply updating that one global scalar variable once per day, it increases or decreases the quantity of amples in every single user wallet proportionally. Um, uh, and universally. So it's a non-dilutive protocol in that when we increase or decrease the quantity of units in in user wallets, um, your fractional percent ownership of the network remains the same. So if you were to own, let's say, 1% of the Ample network when the market cap was 100 um, and the market cap were to grow to, let's say, 1,000, well, you would still have 1%. You would simply have 10 Ample instead of 1 Ample. Um, and so it's non-dilutive and it has that similar quality to Bitcoin, but it's also rules-based. So there isn't actually an individual deciding that we should increase or decrease the supply of Ample. It's just a, a simple algorithm that responds to 24-hour volume-weighted price. And so the way um, economists you know, describe Bitcoin is that it's, it's similar to fiat in that it has no non-monetary utility. So you can't consume it, you can't eat it or use it to build a house. Um, 
it's a pure monetary asset, just like paper money is. Um, but they also say it's like commodity money in the sense that it's absolutely scarce. That is, um, its supply is not at the discretion of individuals or group of, uh, or governments. And so it has some qualities of fiat and some qualities of commodity monies. And Ample is the same way. So um, it has the quality, like fiat, of no non-monetary utility. There's no use for Ample other than as a monetary asset. Uh, and it also has the, the quality of a commodity money in that its scarcity is absolutely defined. It's, it's, it's defined by a set of rules rather than uh, the discretion of individuals. So you talked earlier about gold and also now about Bitcoin. They're viewed more as a store of value, right? Something that you purchase typically out of the expectation that the price is going to appreciate over time, which leads a lot of people to being reluctant to actually use either gold or Bitcoin on a daily basis for uh, ongoing purchases. Mm-hmm. Is the goal with Ampleforth to really serve as a medium of exchange and for people to go and buy coffee with it, for instance? It really isn't. Yeah, and so this is something that folks get wrong about us all the time. Um, and it's because the system has this price target, right? Where we want one Ample unit to always represent the purchasing power of a 2019 U.S. dollar. Uh, folks think that, that because there exists this price target, the goal is to be a stable coin, and therefore the goal is to be used as a media of exchange or to take on the function of U.S. dollars, but um, it's not. So I think the goal in our case is to create a commodity money. Um, it's a speculative asset, but it also has these characteristics Uh, that make it useful as a building block for a financial ecosystem. And so um, just as I don't, I don't really imagine that, you know, Bitcoin will become a very widely used uh, media of exchange because it isn't, it's not well suited for that. But, you know, it, it can take on the function of, of precious metals um, and that's very valuable. So, I mean, traditionally precious metals have been used as a check against inflation. They've been used as a check against uh, boom and bust cycles and, And Bitcoin can be used in such a way as well. And more importantly, in a way that's diversified from existing assets. Uh, but with, uh, the, but the, really the problem with gold and, and therefore the problem with Bitcoin has nothing to do with its qualities as you know, um, a check against inflation or boom bust cycles. You only even have a problem with these assets when you try to build a financial ecosystem or banking system on top of that. And that's really what we are trying to address with Ample. Um, like what kind of base money or building block could be um, could take kind of take us to the next level, right? So if you remember under Bretton Woods, like goods and services were paid in dollars, right? Paper money. Um, the base money was gold. And so um, the exchange media and base media were distinct in, in that sense. Um, whereas today, you know, the exchange media and base media are, are very indistinct, right? That That paper money that we have uh, today is not backed by um, anything really. Uh, it's irredeemable and uncollateralized. And it's also used um, as exchange media. And so there's this natural instinct to think that, you know, that's, that's what crypto is destined to move towards. But I don't think that's the case because these discretionary fiat monies, they only function successfully as a byproduct of being uh, part of sovereign monopolies. Um, And I don't say that in a bad way. I just say that in a very matter of fact way. So, you know, uh, we can print money in the U.S. Um, and enforce that it has some amount of value because, well, folks have to pay their taxes in dollars, right? And we can, and, and folks have to denominate things in, in, in dollars. Um, and there's all sorts of political, economic, and military leverage associated with the United States government that asserts that when we increase the money supply, well, the new paper money isn't going to become you know, worthless overnight. Uh, but that's not guaranteed to be the case, even for, you know, sovereign currencies like you see in Venezuela, you know, other kind of countries who are not as privileged as the United States, you know, even though they have a sovereign monopoly over their people, uh, they can't just get away with increasing money supply um, and not, not seeing kind of price inflation occur as a result. It's because they don't have all that leverage. And You know, on the blockchain, as independent asset creators um, or independent money creators, you don't have any political or military leverage whatsoever, right? So even less than a Venezuela. 
Uh, and therefore, fundamentally, what you're creating cannot assume that like, a, you know, a free, free market of debt, for example, is something that could be sustainably robust and, and not suffer from like random crises, right? So really, I think, I think what's special and what about the opportunity on the blockchain is the ability to create new commodity monies, not new banks necessarily, right? We've always been able to create banks, at least since the Medici era, right? Humankind has, has been able to create banks. We have not always been able to create things that are analogous to gold. That's new. That's novel, right? Isaac Newton was famously obsessed with alchemy. Didn't quite get there, but I think he would have been much more impressed by, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin protocol, right? Then, then you know, a new new type of bank, which we've always had access to. And so I think the opportunity presented by blockchain technology is not to create banks, right? And, and to be clear, the U.S. dollar today um, is this system of banking, right? Uh, but to create commodity monies. And um, yeah, it's it's asking a lot for the commodity money to be both base and exchange media, unless that money is not in fact a commodity money and it is instead a bank. But I don't think that's the opportunity here. So again, that's a long-winded way of saying like, look, I think that, you know, the only problem with gold, you know, comes to light when you start to use it as a foundation for a banking system. Therefore, the only problem with Bitcoin starts to come to light when you, you know, position it as something to be used as a foundation for a banking ecosystem. And, you know, what we're doing with Amples is trying to address that. Like we asked ourselves what sort of base money, um, you know, could take us to the next level and would have been a viable substitute for gold under Bretton Woods. And that's how we came up with the design of an elastic commodity money. Um, and, and just the best way to kind of demonstrate what's going on here is by looking at what's happening in DeFi today. So if, I, if you think of crypto as a new generation of precious metals, DeFi is kind of this new generation of rudimentary banks that's being designed to kind of exchange and allow folks to like lend and borrow against these precious metals. And as a result, it, they're extending the use cases of cryptocurrencies. And, um, you know, if you kind of think about that, it's like, cool, you know, could that get closer to a viable alternative to things like the U.S. dollar for you know transacting goods and services? Perhaps one day. But in the meantime, it's also generating all sorts of interesting risk profiles that are potentially diversified from traditional assets and traditional commodities alike. And I think you know that's mostly what we're seeing drive behavior in uh, crypto today. Just this economic impulse of you know, a desire for uncorrelated gains or, or at least fast gains. Interesting. And, and so do you see Bitcoin as being a direct competitor to Appleforth or do you see the two of you kind of living side by side and complement each other? It is highly complementary. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we're positioned as a better Bitcoin in a way, but um, we are better off with Bitcoin in existence. And I'll kind of tell you why. It's because you know, the, the original design of the Ample, again, was to create a better base money. But we also realized um, upon further analysis that because the supply increases and decreases propagate directly to users, um, that actually affects the, the manner in which the coin would move in the marketplace. Um, so, for example, in the case of the Ample Fourth Network, you can't just look at price as a proxy for gains and losses because the price is generally always going to be about a dollar, right? You just might have more or less ample as a result of market conditions. And so you have to look at the product of price and supply or the fluctuation of market cap as a proxy for gains and losses. And that difference in and of itself, um, we suspected would cause ample to start to decouple from Bitcoin uh, as a movement pattern. And so one of the problems that we were looking at prior to launch was that like, many of these cryptocurrencies are just really tightly correlated with one another. So if you think of Bitcoin as like an asset that's used to kind of diversify a portfolio, it's valuable because it's, it's pretty random. It, it hasn't had a lot of exposure to existing traditional assets and therefore, and it has this kind of, you know, unique volatility fingerprint and risk profile that, you know, predisposes it to potentially fast gains. And, and that's why it's kind of nice to have in your portfolio. But since Bitcoin, many of these cryptocurrencies have, have not added a great deal of diversity. So from a portfolio construction perspective, I can't imagine, you know, things like um, ETH or basic attention token adding a, 
a lot of incremental diversity to our portfolio. And so one of the interesting things about the Ample is it moves differently in the marketplace. We suspected um, that it would have this step function-like movement pattern and that it would therefore be less correlated with Bitcoin than existing digital currencies. And that has largely proven out. So we did kind of a follow-up analysis after um, year one of Ample being live in the market, and it's considerably less correlated with Bitcoin um, than other digital currencies. And so um, it, it does kind of, it's more valuable um, in a basket with Bitcoin than, than it might even be in isolation. And so that's kind of the, the tune we've been marching towards. Um, and so although it, it might be a better Bitcoin for as a building block for a financial ecosystem, um, just as an asset to hold in, in a basket, it's more valuable with Bitcoin in existence for sure. Yeah, I guess a lot of Bitcoin advocates would claim that one of the advantages of Bitcoin is the fact that it's so inflexible, right? And mm -hmm. that they, they call it a hard money, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. How it sound money. And so the fact that basically nobody can change it, the monetary policy is set, it's transparent, everybody knows how it's going to look like. You only have 21 million Bitcoin that's going to be in existence. Those are, I guess, arguments for both sides. But I like your thinking around why it's complementary. And in fact, one of the, I think, challenges right now in the crypto space more broadly is exactly that correlation you talked about. When Bitcoin goes up, typically... Everything out, goes up. Out, yeah, everything goes up and vice versa, right? So being able to decouple that a bit could contribute to building a more robust ecosystem in general. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that I often kind of encounter is this, this belief um, that Bitcoin is, you know, the one true cryptocurrency. Um, but just thinking back historically, if you're thinking about Bitcoin as a digital gold, there, were, there have always been multiple precious metals. There's been gold, silver, copper, so on and so forth. And, you know, it's much more interesting an environment with, with many such assets. And, you know, the fact of the matter is it's very unlikely that Bitcoin will become this commonly used media of exchange that would replace the dollar. It's also very unlikely that Bitcoin would become, you know, the foundational building block of a new monetary standard. Um, but that's okay. It's still extremely valuable. A digital gold has a, a very you know, easy to articulate economic function. Uh, and it has a potentially very high ceiling in terms of its its market cap. And so I don't really understand why there needs to be so much dogma about, you know, asserting that one day we'll be using Bitcoin to kind of, you know, buy coffee, or that it has to be the only asset of its kind. I think once you cast it in the in in the lens of a, a digital gold or a new precious metal, it's like, cool, this is a new precious metal. Um, it's a lot like gold, except for it's much more portable and much more transactable. It's digital, right? We live in a digital world. Um, then you kind of start to see that there certainly is room for a lot more. Like, I don't want just digital gold. What about digital silver, right? And, you know, I know Litecoin called itself that, but Litecoin actually is no different than Bitcoin. And so, you know, in the case of the Ample, it kind of has similar qualities. It's, you know, it's a sound money in that it's non-dilutive and it's rules-based. Um, we're still more on a path to decentralizing governance of things like, you know, the Oracle input. And so we did, we did make some concessions in terms of how decentralized the Ample was at the time of launch, uh, but we did so for reasons that we understood very, very well. So we knew that, you know, fixed supply is great. Um, it is a digital gold, um, especially the way Bitcoin has architected it. Uh, then we simply asked, well, what would be better than a digital gold? Well, it would be this new thing that doesn't have a direct analog in history. It would be like gold, except for it would be automatically non-dilutive and elastic, right? Um, cool, let's design that. Um, but in order to do something like that, you would need some infrastructure. You need price exchange rate as an input. So that's the thing when Bitcoin was created, there were no cryptocurrency exchanges, and therefore there could never be a price input that determines the supply of Bitcoin, right? Um, th they really had very few options. It could be a fixed supply policy, or it could be like a you know a an inflationary policy, uh, but it certainly couldn't be what Ample is today. And so we're very fortunate to have developed kind of this new 
asset on top of the existing infrastructure today where there are cryptocurrency exchanges and therefore there are price exchange rates you know for these cryptocurrencies and therefore you can articulate a set of rules that automatically adjust supply in a non-dilutive manner um, and so yeah i think uh they are very complementary, and I was surprised to find how few people were interested in addressing this problem of tight correlations among cryptocurrencies. It's we, for a long time, we seem to be the only ones aware of or actively working on on that problem altogether. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of folks recognize it's a big problem in the space right now, but it's a very challenging to successfully address that. Yeah, you're and, right. Maybe folks yeah. just thought it was impossible to take into control anyways. Like, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, one of the things is when Bitcoin, when the price goes up, it starts making its way towards more mainstream media. And suddenly you see people talk about that beyond the small crypto bubble. And that just brings, I think, attention to the whole space in general, which drives demand. And then you see altcoins going up as well. One of the things, Evan, I'm curious about is, so a lot of crypto companies, in addition to the correlation challenge that we just talked about, are also spending a lot of time figuring out the business model, right? And how do you make sure that if you build solid tech and you gain adoption, that the token price actually reflects that? More people use it, it becomes more widely accepted and so forth how do you design it in a way where the economics actually reflect that curious what's your take about that and how do you guys approach that yeah i mean so my take on that and i thought about this quite a lot back in 2017 and 2018 while utility tokens were uh, kind of really hot um, and i concluded that it doesn't quite make a lot of sense right so i mean the the breakdown in the analogy here is when when folks start to think about cryptocurrencies as securities, like equity, versus commodities, right? So if, when you have uh, some placeholder for, um, you know, the, the discounted future value of a company, then the company's success kind of propagates into that placeholder. And it's, you know, this function of discounted future cash flows, you know, PE ratios, revenue run rates, and so on and so forth. Um, but with, you know, cryptocurrency, even if it purports to represent the value of a network, say like basic attention token, they've got a bat, but they've got this kind of browser um, and they've got this asset, but largely they kind of trade according to Bitcoin's movement part pattern, not in, according to kind of, you know, the usage of um, the browser itself. And that's just because typically total demand is equal to the sum of speculative demand and transactional demand, right? And you know, really the speculative demand component of that equation is, is much more dominant than the transactional demand um, component of that equation. And, and for a lot, I mean, it's almost guaranteed to be that case based on the limited transaction throughput of these chains. And so I would say the example of success here where, you know, some sort of non-monetary utility value or transactional value is driving, you know, the value of the network would be an example like basic, or sorry, um, finance token. Right, so BNB, they have this discretionary burn where they actively decrease the supply based on kind of, um, and they burn assets based on revenue targets. And, and so when you decrease the supply, then you can actually increase it, the, the price of the token. And if you decrease the supply as a function of revenue, uh, then cool, you can kind of have this security-like behavior, right? Um, but that's a very heavy-handed approach. And to answer your other question, like how do we address it? We don't. We don't because we're a pure monetary asset and therefore we don't have to, right? So Bitcoin doesn't have to address that problem because it's not claiming to be, you know, a delivery coffee network and scratching its head thinking, well, you know, we're selling more coffee today than we were yesterday. How come our price isn't going up, right? It's, it's, it's simply a digital gold and its price goes up and down based on uh, demand to hold it as an asset for monetary reasons, for store value and value transference reasons. Right. So, so basically, the more demand there is, then over time the price should theoretically go up because you have a certain supply and yeah, exactly. Demand. Yeah, the demand for its use as a store of value or as a check against boom bust cycles or inflation, um, it 
it, the demand for it as a speculative asset um, increases its value and its its liquidity. And there is no utility value. So that's one of the things that Bitcoin has in common with fiat. There is no non-monetary utility. And, and gold doesn't even, gold hasn't, has actual utility value that's not monetary. It can be used for jewelry, can use be used in semiconductor technologies. That's a very small portion of its kind of value. But it, with with Bitcoin, just as it is with paper money, there is no non-monetary utility. And I think most economists would consider that to be a good thing, right? Like if paper money could be consumed um, as food or sustenance, or we could use it to kind of build houses, that would not make the US dollar better money. It would make it harder to regulate supply. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a problem that, um, Utility tokens have to address that pure monetary assets don't have to address because they embrace the fact that they're pure monetary assets out the gate and Ample is that way. So the Ample is not some placeholder that represents the future value of some other service. Um, it's just a, it is, the product is the asset. Right. So let's talk for a sec about where are you right now in terms of the company. So you've already launched Ample. Can you talk a bit about what are people using it for? Yeah, totally. Um, so we launched, I guess, a little over a year ago on Bitfinex as their first uh, IEO listing partner. And, um, you know, there was some people that paid attention to that launch. And, and then largely we, we've been pretty quiet. We were pretty quiet for a time after that. I think a lot of people didn't really understand what the AMP was or why anyone might um, desire uh, an elastic supply policy and, and not a whole lot of people took the time to read through our materials and for that matter the materials were much richer and longer to consume than your typical cryptocurrency project but you know around uh, July of this year we released this kind of well basic bank I would say uh, a, a program called uh, the geyser which is a liquidity mining program which allowed folks to stake Uniswap Ample liquidity tokens into this contract and receive a continuous drip from our ecosystem fund. Um, and that really bootstrapped a, a frenzy of growth. So within maybe about a month and a half, the asset went from a $20 million market cap all the way to like a $1.6 billion market cap. And then has since That's kind of crazy. come down and taken and, and kind of stabilized at a higher clip. But it was, it was kind of one of those assets that bootstrapped kind of a growth, um, I guess, spree in the DeFi ecosystem this summer. And so, yeah, we saw tremendous growth, um, high volumes, high liquidity. Uh, you know, I, one day I checked in and just looking at on-chain volume. So this is like not on centralized exchanges, but I think on Uniswap alone, we had done something like 90 million in volume. And so it also marked that first moment where, you know, these volume and liquidity metrics on you know, decentralized exchanges like Uniswap start to seriously rival centralized exchanges. And we did see, you know, a lot of centralized exchanges suddenly start to pay attention and say like, well, um, we have to care about these decentralized exchanges because, you know, they're starting to get to that point where they they rival, you know, the value that we provide as a, right. as a business. And so, you know, we're not actually a business anymore. So originally, um, when we started, I we we had this Delaware C Corp that served as a vehicle for raising a small seed round um, from really well-respected venture capitalists in San Francisco. Um, but the token is actually issued by a Panamanian nonprofit foundation. So we started, we've really started to distinguish between you know this company that birthed this asset and the asset itself, which is meant to be kind of owned by the public and not you know a, a corporation. So um, you know. We've seen a lot of growth and and a lot of clones, and so you know I think I've, you know for a few weeks it was just like a, a new clone every day. A lot of them have kind of fizzled out or um, not grown to their full potential. I mean, the most uh, popular clone of these would be Yam. Um, if there's any one that you know an audience member has heard of, it would probably be that. Um, and uh, uh, now we're kind of interested in building up the stack. So like I said, uh, we created the new precious metal, which is Ample. Uh, and now we want to start to create more of these little banks, which is, you know, smart contracts that allow you to kind of lend and borrow against Ample. And 
uh, automated market making applications that you know provide special purpose liquidity for Ample. Uh, and then we also want to move kind of into horizontally across more chains, right? So a lot of these layer one protocols that were funded in 2017, 2018 um, are starting to come online. And now with decentralized finance, there there can actually be real usage. So I would say in the past, it was hard for me to articulate a reason for why anyone might uh, build on any platform other than Ethereum, because it's where all the, the developer community was, uh, all the information resources were there, uh, all the liquidity was there. Um, but now um, with DeFi, it's not just about, you know, explaining the ideology and philosophy of your new chain, like saying that it's faster and, you know, more censorship resistant can only get you so far compared to, you know, stimulating an economic ecosystem there. So once there's liquidity on some of these new change, there will, there will naturally, naturally be arbitrage opportunities between Ethereum and these other layer one um, protocols. And, you know, I think there are people who are pretty indiscriminate about ideology and uh, they will simply go where the money is and they'll extract value across all of these networks. And, you know, that will kind of beget additional usage. And so I think it, you know, it's very likely there will be a golden era for layer one protocols coming in the next year. It's going to be fascinating to see, right? Space is evolving so quickly right now. One example is what you talked about, the going popularity of decentralized exchanges as opposed to centralized one. But we see a lot of new business models and innovations happening. And I think we probably both agree it's only the beginning, right? These are still very early days in the crypto space. So you've been working on Ample for, for how long now? Let's see. Uh, we closed our seed round in February of 2018. Almost like almost three years, right? So coming up on three years. So one of the things that I'm sure you get asked a lot about when people think about crypto, oftentimes, and I talk about people not necessarily down the rabbit hole, but people more in the mainstream media and maybe people in finance who don't follow the crypto space as closely as you. One of the things obviously they're aware of is the occasional hacks that happen. There was one recently on KuCoin, and I know there was also some theft of Ampleforth tokens as well. What's your perspective on the right way to handle that? Because some folks in the crypto space tend to think of something like this happened, we shouldn't really do anything. Others are like, no, if something like this happened, we should try to reverse the outcome so that we can reimburse the people who were affected. Curious how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. So I can tell you how we specifically thought about it in that case. So, um, you know, I think what happened was KuCoin was hacked um, and might have been an inside job. But at the end of the day, what happened was they lost control of their private keys for their hot wallets. And, you know, at the time, you know, it was made clear to us that about at least $150 million worth of VRC tokens alone had been transferred out of their hot wallets as a result of that hack. Um, and I think at the time I was looking at it and it was something like, you know, greater than 10 million US dollars uh, worth of ample. Um, and that, that was substantial. And, you know, yeah. right now, uh, we have the ability to upgrade contracts. So when we launched the network, um, we launched it with upgradability. Um, again, we're on a path to one day kind of decentralizing um, this process of upgrading contracts and eventually actually eliminating um, upgrades or, or very kind of mostly eliminating upgrades so that they can only be used to adjust hyperparameters. But the fact of the matter is right now, we still had the build, have the ability to kind of upgrade the contract. And uh, after at the time of that hack, it was um, it was a judgment call, right? It's like, do we freeze the assets that have been hacked? Because we've identified the wallet. KuCoin has asked us to help um, or not. And or, or do we pretend that we can't, right? And I think intervening is not something that we would do lightly or something that we even desire to do at all. Uh, but there was a very, very small window of opportunity to act. And so we submitted a contract upgrade that allows us to pause uh, transferability just for that one address. Um, and I think that in some sense, we, we had to do it. Um, we could either 
pretend. So we had an opportunity to protect users who had been affected by this. Um, and we could have chosen not to, um, but because we will not always have this ability to protect user assets in this particular way, uh, we saw it as, as something that we ought to do. It just it's, it's one of those things where very shortly around the corner, that ability will no longer be in existence. And so, yeah, it's kind of just like being honest of, of like saying like we're not, we don't yet have fully decentralized governance, right? We have a multi-sig um, that controls these upgrades. Um, we could do it now. We won't be able to do it in the future. If we do it now, we can protect users um, to some extent and protect the market as well um, to some extent. But um, yeah, it's tough. I just, I just saw it and we discussed this internally. Uh, we saw it as an opportunity that won't always be here. So we, we had a limited time window to act on it and we did. Um, but my, my kind of, I know I take solace in knowing that it won't be long before we won't have to make those decisions anymore. And <laughs> what will be, will be. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's a really tough position to be at, I'm sure, and to make these decisions that impact people so directly financially. Shifting gears a bit, so you've been working on Amper for, for close to three years now. What has been maybe one of the biggest unexpected learnings for you, something you realize that is important as an entrepreneur to build a breakout startup that maybe wasn't very clear for you almost three years ago when you started the company? Um, I would say the composition of your investors and team early days um, has hmm. such a larger impact on the future of what you build and how you build it than anybody could have made me understand. So people could have said, Evan, you want to raise from the best people because they help you. And I would be like, great, you know, like in the best case scenario, I would take money from the best investors. But at the end of the day, I need some cash, right, to function, to operate as a business, and I'll settle for something less than the best investor who's most aligned for with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, so much of what ultimately happened uh, was determined in, in the early days of our protocol or of our round before there even was a, a company, before there, there was any technology built. So we had written this white paper and um, we had designed this asset that's, you know, I guess the predecessor to Ample. Um, and it had this kind of, you know, this kind of Genesis token that would receive gains from supply increases and you know there was a and and obviously we had you know received term sheets from extremely good investors um for that asset and you know the last minute you know we had to change the deal so because we came to realize that you know creating this privileged asset class although it is an extremely kind of profitable looking thing on paper uh, would actually reduce the value of the network. And we wanted to kind of at the last, at the 11th hour, adjust the terms such that um, the ample that you hold uh, benefits from all supply increases. In, in a way, we wanted to take all senior rush out of the system. So this is profits made from, you know, the minting of money. We wanted that to be zero. Um, and there was a tough moment right there where we we almost lost um, some of the investors uh, that we had worked so hard to secure around with. But um, ultimately, uh, they were supportive of it. In fact, one of them gave us all the leverage to do so and said that, look, if the other guys around the table don't like this modification, we'll buy up your entire round, right? And uh, and then it became clear to us like who was good and who wasn't, who was aligned with um, not only their own balance sheet but with the growth of you as a company and your network and uh, that made all the difference like that one negotiation maneuver at the end of a term sheet allowed us to create the asset that we created and we, we simply wouldn't have been able to had we not made that adjustment before anybody set in a foot in a room that could be called ample fourth headquarters that was all determined we couldn't have made a rules-based elastic commodity money um 
had we signed a different set of terms, we would have been violating all sorts of agreements. And so that team uh, has has really, really shaped uh, our trajectory. And it's not just for that one reason, but it's also the composition is such that we have True Ventures, which is kind of like a school. We have Founder Collective, which is kind of like a family, right? We've got Pantera, and, and those guys are kind of just like your friends, right? You need all of these dynamics in your life in order to kind of function as a healthy human being. And you want to be able to recreate that um, in your investor composition because being a startup founder, you know, it's, it's very different than working at Google where they've created all these network structures for you so that you can thrive. When you're, you know, just a startup founder, you're kind of like this person in the woods with a knife, you know, fighting bears and lions trying to survive. And, and you really do need these kind of healthy network structures. Um, and so I would say the composition of investors in terms of how they structure themselves and how that fulfills, you know, or complements your needs, uh, the integrity of the investors as well. Um, you know, we're very fortunate to have had only investors with extremely long-term vision. And this is the benefit of, you know, having raised from traditional VCs um, as opposed to folks who are very fleeting in terms of their, you know, investment horizon. Um, and we have plenty of those now because lots of retailers and institutions have bought into Ample on the public markets or along the way. But the initial set of investors really, really important, just as the initial team is really, really important. It has such a profound impact on what you ultimately do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what some entrepreneurs, maybe the ones who are less experienced sometimes miss, right? I mean, when you have a great set of investors, it's just such an advantage for you as the founder or the founding team. A lot of the best practices and the things that work are actually pretty universal. And so great investors probably have seen a lot of similar cases before, whatever challenge it is that you're tackling. And so the ability to rely on them, talk with them, get their input can sometimes be crucial. In my case, even before we closed the round, the investors were already working for us. These are folks, the good investors have created space in their life to help you. Right? These are structures, they've operationalized their existence yep. to support their founders. Uh, whereas, you know, if you raise from, let's say, a band of angels, um, all of who are high net worth but have very little time, they might not be able to help you. And in the worst case, they might create a lot of stress for you in a counterproductive way for a small amount of money. And so just thinking about the, the differences between those three outcomes, right? A group of folks right, a family, a school, some friends who have operationalized their existence to support you versus a bunch of high net worth people who are very smart but don't have time to help you versus a bunch of high net worth people who are giving you grief all day long uh, in a way that's uh, very short-sighted or, you know, just unhelpful but counterproductive, right? And so, you know, this it's like positive, neutral, negative, you absolutely the, the difference between success and, and failure, I'm always told, is paper thin. You need every advantage you can get. And so, of course, surrounding yourself with the best people makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Any thoughts about the fundraising process? Obviously, you were successful in that and raised that capital that you needed to get going. For folks who are listening to the podcast and about to raise their initial round of financing, any tips, anything that you found particularly helpful as you uh, went through these discussions with potential investors? I mean, I think in my case, I mostly raised from folks that I had already known for years. So I had developed relationships with them in some capacity over a long time through a number of kind of different interactions, um, not all of which had a specific agenda. But the output of that was I was very comfortable uh, in these pitches and very comfortable telling them kind of strengths and weaknesses of an idea or of a group of people. Uh, I think that that kind of sincerity is helpful because ultimately they know that no idea is perfect. Uh, no founder or team is perfect. Um, they're trying, at least in the case of good investors, to see the best in you, right? They're trying to squint their eyes 
and see this big hairy vision that you've painted come true. Um, they're active in wanting to confirm that belief and being insincere actually just gets in the way of that, right? If there is some shortcoming or flaw or something that you just haven't sorted out yet, um, I think they want to know that you're coachable enough and that they can help you figure it out, right? Because they know what they're capable of. They know they know what how far their money will get you. They're trying to figure out how how far their money will get you just you know, at face value, and then they're trying to figure out, I think, how how much value they can bring to you as people, and they're also trying to kind of lay upon it lay it upon an understanding of your vision. Um, and so, yeah, being comfortable, I think, is really important. Like, I think being over-rehearsed is dangerous. Like, I've had successful fundraisers with no deck, right? And I've had unsuccessful fundraisers with, you know, spreadsheets and very kind of calculated decks. And so uh, at the seed round, it's it's just about people. I think you're right. Also, like, the importance of just being sincere, right? I mean, certainly good investors, they know that not everything is rosy. There are going to be challenges ahead. And so actually being honest about what you view as the biggest challenges moving forward and painting a more realistic picture of, hey, there's this huge opportunity that we're about to embark on, but also there are some challenges ahead and maybe some major competitors. I think the great investors actually really appreciate entrepreneurs that are honest and thoughtful about these challenges. Yeah, they might even have some kind of back of the house psychographic profiling techniques that are just like, okay, this is this tells me how the entrepreneur is going to perform under stress. And this is, tells me how the entrepreneur is going to perform in, in a time of growth. And they want to know that. Um, so yeah. if you're too guarded, they can't really get comfortable with that. And, and the good investors will view this as a 10-year relationship, maybe longer, right? Um, so uh, I think just be comfortable, be honest. Absolutely. Some really great points. So Evan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and uh, insights. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.